Listener supported. WNYC Studios. The Jazz Loft Radio Series is funded in part by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities and by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts. The Jazz Loft, 1963. Everything was changing in the loft and out. These things, uh, they happen almost imperceptibly. You wake up one day and it's changed, but you're not aware of it as it's happening. By this time, photographer W. Eugene Smith had achieved something phenomenal in the dingy, bare-bones loft space at 821 6th Avenue. The chemistry there had been a spectacularly welcoming one. Smith had been a kind of friendly presence in the loft while carrying on his photographic work. With composer and teacher Hall Overton, painter David X. Young, and the other insiders and regulars, Smith had succeeded in creating a community with its own rules, standards, and traditions. Hundreds or perhaps thousands of people are thought to have come in and out of the place over a period of roughly six or seven years. He may not have even realized it at the time, but in addition, Smith had managed to shoot 40,000 photographs of life in and around the building, and he'd recorded something near 4,000 hours of tape of the comings and goings of its residents and visitors. Bass player Bill Crow was there a lot, He confirms that as open and spontaneous as the place was, there was a kind of order to it. Everybody had their own uh, value, and we all knew what it was. What was yours, do you know? I would show up. (laughs) I was willing to bring a bass there and climb up all those stairs and play as long as they wanted to play. This is Crow jamming with two other loft regulars, Zoot Sims and Bob Brookmeyer. The late vibraphonist Teddy Charles rented space there for a whole summer. I had to go up five flights of stairs with these vibes that weighed 230 pounds. I was very strong then. Five flights of stairs and hot as hell in the summer. Boy, it was hot there. But still, all the stuff was going on was great. Teddy Charles often jammed with Hall Overton on piano. a few other lofts. The late bass player Jimmy Stevenson. But as far as I know, there was nothing like the loft that was on the 6th Avenue. It was hard not to notice, though, that in the early 60s, something was dramatically different. To the regulars in the jazz loft, one of the most obvious changes was in the music itself. Pianist Dave Frischberg and the late Dick Katz felt it in their own ways. It was a whole different world then. Musically and socially, the folk musicians came and took over The guitar players came and took over. The recording engineers came and took over. It changed the face and the sound of music forever. It was this period where rock took the ball and affected the jazz world because these rock guys, it was really about, they were theater. It wasn't about the music. That's the way I see it. Jazz had its own readjustments. 
In a loft tape from 1963, trumpeter and band leader Don Ellis addresses his group just before a jam session. Everybody, like now, think of something you want to do musically. And then I'll give a downbeat and everybody do it. Uh, You can listen to what somebody else is doing, but don't change your thing. I mean, set it now and then stick with it, okay? They follow his instructions and begin to play. It was an entirely different kind of music. Jazz musician and writer Bill Kirshner. The avant-garde became one of the biggest focuses of jazz of the 1960s. This is from New Year's Day in the Loft, 1964. Paul Blay is at the piano with Jimmy Stevenson on bass and Roland Alexander on tenor sax. Blay remembers it as a transitional moment coming directly from Charlie Parker, who had died in 1955. Bird did it all. Bird played everybody's part, everybody's instrument better than they did and summed it all up. And that was the problem. That's what free jazz came about. Because finally said, geez, what's next after Bird? I mean, the guy did it all. And so that was the conundrum we faced in the early 60s at Eugene Smith's loft. How could you be recognizable? You had to be able to play in a manner that they could tell it was you without being knowing who it was. I mean, that's, that's not so much originality as uh, stylishness, both very valuable assets. And you had to do it in a natural manner without sounding premeditated. And you had to have a place to do it. The only place you could feel unobstructed and invited to play far out, remember, this was considered far out in that period was at that loft. And I think that, you know, what happened with jazz is what happened with any other kind of art after a certain point is that a certain kind of predictability came into it. Washington University professor Gerald Early is author of One Nation Under a Groove. It was always, I suppose, against this kind of predictability that you kept getting innovation in the music to try to stave off predictability. Predictability was gone, too, from life outside the loft. I listen to the White House in Washington, D.C. And President Kennedy said that state troopers were on their way. Smith had his radio on a lot in those days, and his tape recorders picked up broadcasts from up and down the dial. By the end of 63, when the radio was almost always on, it was beyond unpredictable. The unthinkable had happened. A grieving Jacqueline Kennedy made an unannounced visit late Monday night to her husband's grave at Arlington National Cemetery. All that post-World War II optimism and spontaneity turned darker. Accompanying her was the late president's brother, Attorney General Robert Kennedy. The chemistry of the jazz loft, if you can call it that, had changed too. David X. Young, who'd been the pioneer of the loft years before, left in 1960. And Dave Frischberg remembers that some musicians just stopped coming. I didn't hang out there. I didn't, I don't know, just didn't, kind of faded away. I changed a lot, too, you know. There had been no more enthusiastic jammer than Bill Crow, but New York got more expensive. Instead of living in a village pad, my wife and I moved to Rockland County, bought a little house, 
And he said, man, that's 30 miles away, you know. And I said, well, gas is only 35 cents a gallon, what the hell, you know. We were all changing, you know. You can't really keep anything the same. Ron Free, the drummer of Distinction, had also left the loft in 1960 with a bad drug habit, which he later beat. It was very educational. I don't know any better way to sum it up. You just learn a lot of stuff, and you spend the rest of your life assimilating it and sorting it out. He was not alone, observed the pianist and producer Dick Katz. Jazz got to a place where the drug thing became a true albatross. That got in the way of it being taken seriously by well-meaning people. They just wouldn't take anything as seriously with guys who stoned out of their minds, you know. I spent exactly a decade in New York, the 60s. Bass player Steve Swallow left for his own reasons. I left in 1970 and never came back. And At the time I left, the signs of the end were apparent. Paul Overton, ill with cirrhosis of the liver in the late 60s, spent a long time in the hospital and never returned to the loft. He wasn't able to walk the stairs anymore. He died in 1971. I remember visiting, you know, when he was actually on his deathbed over at Roosevelt Hospital. Classical composer Carmen Moore was one of Overton's students. I went over and spent uh, one of the last few days with him, just whispered in his ear. I sat and I just talked and talked and talked and left him and that was last time I saw him but uh, there's a lot of him in my music it's alright yeah it's working good as for Gene Smith changes happened there too this moon moon is a person's emotional the you know emotional capacity and you have very much of that because you have the moon in the first house this is one of the last tapes recorded at the jazz law. Gene Smith, like having investigated over the years prescription drugs, drink, and various psychomedical solutions, at this point really was having his astrological chart read by Eleanor Bach. What these difficulties uh, mean. I'm not coping so well this week. Well, that's all right. It was December 1967. You know, it may be that you're going through a kind of death now, and if you see it through and come out of it a new person, then this liberation that Uranus means may be a part of your personality. Smith's whole world was, to some degree, coming apart. There's evidence from his kids. Author of the book, The Jazz Loft Project, Sam Stevenson. He began threatening suicide in the mid-60s, and he always sort of did that. But I think um, he really became down and out in the mid to late 60s, and I think he ran out of money. His son, Pat Smith, received frequent cries for help from the now less populated jazz loft. He was going through a period of depression, and uh, he would call up in the middle of the night, and we'd have to go go hold his hand. He was threatening to commit, always threatening to commit suicide back then. I'm not sure he ever meant it. We just needed attention. But uh, we did make some midnight runs down there. Smith's obsessive taping slowed way down. There weren't as many musicians coming through. So I, I think it was a combination of the scene changing and him being down and out personally that caused this to stop. I don't think he made a conscious decision, I'm going to stop doing this now. But he just sort of moved on. Eugene Smith was evicted from 821 Sixth Avenue in 1971 after lengthy disputes with the landlord there. He did one more major project, Minamata. It was a photographic expose of the crippling and sometimes fatal effects of industrial contamination in the water of a small Japanese town. Smith died of a stroke in 1978 at age 59. 
So why doesn't a great place last forever? Times change. Eras end. Well, is it the end? Because something else happens at the end of the loft scene, and that is the rebirth of a new loft scene. Historian and author Robin Kelly. It ends up being physically located in Harlem or Newark. Uh, The black arts movement takes off, and there's a new set of lofts that erupt in the mid-60s. And more importantly, they go one step further. They provide music education for youth. They provide other kinds of social services because suddenly the performance spaces are meant to be public spaces for engagement and that you can actually make art outside of the commercial spaces. Uh, that is the beauty of the loft. You know, that's the, the legacy that I think continued into the next generation. The Jazz Loft building still stands on 6th Avenue, just north of 28th Street. Barely. I walked by there the other day. Sharon Zukin, author of Loft Living. I was a little surprised that it is still standing. It looks as though it's, it's really living on borrowed time. I remember the flower district uh, and how, how at night, how empty it was. The building is currently owned by a family of importers and wholesale retailers. It wasn't necessary to call. You just showed up any time of the day or middle of the night. From the outside, it looks like a a residential tenement. It's a relatively narrow, five-story building, no elevator, but filled with memories. Those creaky stairs. From the ground floor to the top. We were just going and having these really freewheeling, swinging jam sessions. They play till all crazy hours. Really cooking. There was a lot of smoke, and there was usually like one hanging light. And all kinds of people came by. What have you got the tape recording on for? Well, because my cat was chasing a mouse. <laughs> what happened? The goddamn mouse got away. It's life. We didn't think anything of it. Now it's a big deal. Oh, man, you played with it. Yeah, so, you know, so the way it was. But everybody loved it. That was just the place. It was like a little nirvana up there. You never really forgot anybody that was up there. You just didn't. It was just that special. 821 6th Avenue, the forgettable address of a nondescript building that was, for some number of years, the place to be. The Jazz Loft radio series was produced at WNYC in association with the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University with immeasurable help from Sam Stevenson with Dan Partridge. Thanks also to Lauren Hart, Lynn McKnight, and Greg Britz. WNYC's Edward Haber was technical director for the series. Consulting editor was Julie Burstein. We had assistance from Laura Mayer, Alexander Yellen, Nina Goodby, Noel Black, and Oliver Kramer. I was writer and producer. For WNYC's Jazz Loft Radio Series, I'm Sarah Fishko.
This series was funded in part by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities and by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts.